0: Quick Takes is a podcast from BCA Research, informing investors with straightforward, actionable analysis of macro and market events. Hi there, and welcome back to the Quick Takes podcast. I'm your host, Rukhaya Ibrahim, strategist at BCA Research. It's an important time in the political calendars of the world's two largest economies. China recently concluded its 20th National Party Congress, and we're now only days away from the U.S. midterm elections. Needless to say, the outcomes of these two events have implications for investors globally. This week, I chatted with my colleague Matt Gerken about his takeaways from China's Party Congress as well as his predictions for the U.S. midterm elections. Matt heads up BCA's geopolitical and U.S. political strategies. Hi, Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Rukaya, thanks a lot for having me.
0: Okay, so let's begin with your takeaways from China's Party Congress. Um, President Xi Jinping, of course, he gave his work report at the start of the Party Congress. What are your main takeaways from his speech that you think investors should be paying attention to? Uh, Was there anything in the speech that surprised you um, or any indication that there's gonna be a shift in policy that makes you more optimistic about the future um, for China's economy and financial markets?
1: Definitely not more optimistic, although Xi Jinping will have to stabilize the economy. So China's trying to basically convert 40 years of economic success into strategic security. The economic model is expiring, and so they're now focused more on on translating that into overall strategic gains. And the party has selected Xi Jinping to revert to strongman rule to manage this difficult economic transition and also the the international environment, which is much more difficult now because of the breakup with the United States, and this goes back to 2012. And of course, Xi Jinping really consolidated power through the anti-corruption campaign and was fairly well positioned in 2017. But what we see today is that he has now absolutely dominated the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. We have 65 percent turnover rate in the Central Committee in in 2017 and 2022, which is much higher than usual, and shows that, that that he's really shuffled out a lot of old leaders in with the new. They do tend to be loyal or su- supporters of of his own um, faction. Hu Jintao, the former president, was escorted out of the Congress. People have kind of said, you know, well he's old and he's sick. You know, maybe he was just taken out because he didn't feel good. Well, the thing is, it was on the same day that his entire faction was purged from the Politburo and the Standing Committee. So. Probably part of the purge and part of the symbolism of absolute power concentrated in one man, which in this context is viewed as a good thing in the Communist Party context. Um, so the P- the Politburo Standing Committee is stocked with Xi's followers. Uh, he has no rivals on the st- Standing Committee. He has no successors. He did not lay out a succession plan, which is going to be a problem for China later. Uh, in terms of the characteristics of the Politburo, you know, he he basically promoted party apparatchiks at the expense of technocrats who worked on the state council or those who worked in state-owned enterprises. Uh, even with regard to provincial chiefs, it's normal for China to have provincial chiefs kind of taken a large role in the Politburo, but that's even come down a little bit in 2022. So basically he surrounded himself with people who are not going to rival him, not going to succeed him, are not really technocratic leaders, but are more party or ideological leaders. Uh, And then there was also a slight increase in the military security uh, faction within the Politburo. So this is generally a negative thing for global political stability and and global economic uh, predictability.
0: And what does that tell you about uh, the policy priorities for Beijing going forward now that he's consolidated power? You know, what are going to be the long term policy goals that will drive the economy going forward?
1: Well, you mentioned you know the speech that he gave, and the terminology in the speech was heavily weighted against the older terms like reform and opening up and markets and and growth. These things were all deemphasized, even the term economic was deemphasized. What is much more prominent now is is really to talk about socialism to talk about security, to talk about uh the military and the people's liberation army so Effectively, we're seeing a translation in priorities where the economy is doing worse, the source of legitimacy for the party has then eroded, and the party is then putting forward nationalism, communist ideology, and a, a more kind of assertive global role as a substitute for that legitimacy. And then this means that those priorities are very important to monitor next year because, of course, Xi Jinping does need, again, he needs to stabilize the economy. So he kind of faces a choice between stimulating the economy and pursuing normalization or or at least uh, de-escalation with the West, the U.S. and Europe. Or potentially, if he's really on the war path and looking to basically repeat Vladimir Putin's mistake in, in Ukraine and target Taiwan, then we could see an austere economy in preparation for a wartime environment. What I think we can really count on is a focus on preparing for war, but not necessarily invading Taiwan. And that self-reliance will be the economic mantra. There'll be kind of a new long march, which Xi Jinping has used in his language to refer to a long period of difficulty, tribulation. Uh, But the purpose will be to prepare for war with Taiwan, which means solidifying supply chains, and then reaching out to Europe and the world, excluding the United States, to try to maintain... The trade side of the equation, which is which is indispensable even today.
0: Okay, so moving from these long-term priorities to something that's more short-term, uh, which is the zero COVID policy. If you look at the reaction of financial markets to the Party Congress, they Chinese equities have generally fallen since the start of the Party Congress, but this week since the beginning of this week, they've actually uh, been rising because of speculation that China is going to start to relax or is thinking about relaxing the zero COVID policy. Now, of course, the zero COVID policy has had a big impact on the economic activity in China this year. So where do you stand on that? Do you think that this is uh, likely to happen uh, soon and boost Chinese equities as a result?
1: Well, I do think that the COVID policy will be eased on the margin over the coming year. I did not think ever that it would be announced at the party Congress or that we would see an immediate about-face or overnight transition to easing COVID policy. The way to, to look at this is that economic stability is necessary for all Chinese leaders and the Chinese leader is expected, and i mean talking across dynasties and across history, Chinese leaders are supposed to have the mandate of heaven, which is visible in the signs of a stable society. It has good and functional economy and infrastructure. And Chinese dynasties have been threatened by disease, by epidemics. And in fact, disease has played a role in the downfall of six of 10 Chinese dynasties. And four, it played a major role. You could even say the leading role in the downfall of the dynasty. So it was clear that China would react in a very draconian fashion. And we saw this immediately when COVID emerged in Wuhan. Uh, But it's also true that eventually that policy starts to threaten the other side of the mandate of heaven. and, And that is, you know, the overall economic stability. You're preventing people from dying. You're suppressing the mortality rate, but you're increasing the unemployment rate. And Xi Jinping's goal is not to just kind of manage a Chinese economic decline. And in fact, longer term risk for the survival of the Communist Party in the single party system would be large scale unemployment, youth unemployment, social unrest and then political dissent. So he will have to pivot away from suppressing the mortality rate and allow greater flexibility in the services sector and in and so, and society. Uh, But he doesn't want to just manage Chinese decline, and he doesn't want to do a Big Bang economic opening up to the outside world because he's afraid of integration. He's pursuing self-reliance instead. And so when you put all that together, what you end up with is that he'll use a state-driven economic model. He'll try to shift the investment into the high-tech sector and into supply chain resilience and supply chain security, and he'll maintain a pretty aggressive foreign policy. and. For that reason, the domestic market becomes more important and COVID restrictions will have to be eased over time. And there will be some compromises in terms of whether to import antiviral drugs or whether, you know, whether to import mRNA vaccines if China cannot develop one. Uh, Those things will start to shift uh, for the sake of, of domestic stability.
0: Okay, so let's shift gears from China to the US. So we're now less than a week away from the US midterm elections. Opinion polls have recently moved in favor of the Republicans. So I know you have your own election models for the House and Senate. What are you predicting as the likely outcomes from the elections?
1: Well, the, thank you. The first thing to observe is that the US is in a long-term political crisis and a social crisis. And We've had five contested elections, presidential elections, over the history of the country. Two of which have occurred in the past 22 years, and we've also had two presidents elected where they won the electoral college vote but didn't win the popular vote. So this is a society that's extremely divided, and there's this there's a division between the popular will or the democratic will and the constitutional system, which of course constrains the popular will to some extent on the basis of Republican political theory, which is how the Constitution was forged. So this political crisis is driven in great part because of the deindustrialization of the US, which is now being blamed on China, but also inequality, the surge in inequality. Effectively, America's political establishment is not going to blame itself for the stagnation of wages in real terms or for the stagnation of society or the erosion of the social fabric. Instead, it's going to blame foreigners and particularly China, but China has been willing to pay that, play that part, like we, we talked about, this more aggressive foreign policy over the past 10 years from China. And so what you see is that the U.S. is having this crisis about how to govern itself in the context of rising global challenges and a starkly divided domestic populace. So the midterms are now occurring in that space, right? They occur... You know like we have congressional elections every two years and we have like kind of a midterm election every four years and the midterms work against the presidential party typically because the presidential party is at least marginally more com- complacent having gained power in 2020 in this case uh, while the opposition is marginally more motivated because they're unhappy with the latest results and they want to put checks on the current leadership and and that's clearly the case this year So inflation and the economy are also going to add to that cyclical factor. And they are the most relevant issues, and they always were the most relevant issues this year. And I think over the summer when the Democrats were uh, starting to rebound a little bit in the opinion polls, the media and analysts were wrong to focus on the rebound. What the real focus should have stayed on was the economy and inflation. Uh, But it is true that the GOP is seeing its tailwinds a little bit weakened by some of the other issues, abortion, for one, the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, motivating women voters, and then insurrection or the January 6th rebellion at the Capitol, which has had an aftermath of investigations and recriminations. And you've seen independent voters uh, be very wary of the Republicans. So some of the candidates the Republicans have put forward are not palatable. And what that means is that that this is not going to be an a enormous Republican sweep. Uh, but also, Republicans are still going to benefit from, you know, the the fact that they're the opposition and that there's sentiment very much against the opposition in, in this economic context. Uh, women's support for Biden is a critical factor here and for the Democrats. And it's just lower than it was in 2020 or 2021. So even though the abortion issue has gained traction, it hasn't motivated women's support to the extent that one would start to say that it could really change the outcome of the election. And young people don't really like Biden at all, for obvious reasons. He's old and out of touch. uh, But also, young people support the Democrats, but again, not at 2020 or 2021 levels. It's come down. So effectively, inflation and the economy are the top issues, and that's stirring up voters against the party in power. And it's very likely to result in the House of Representatives going to the Republicans. That's pretty much a done deal. What's debatable is the Senate. And I think really the Senate is too close to call. The Democrats only need to lose one seat on a net basis to lose control. So one might kind of lean in favor of Republican control. But if you look at the polling, those issues I mentioned, especially abortion, are preventing the Republicans from pulling ahead in the way that you would expect. So I think the Senate is too close to call. And then finally, I'd just say that external shocks have weakened the Biden administration. And and we did some research into this at the beginning of the year when Russia invaded Ukraine. But it's clear now that external shocks really do have a negative impact. And and that's what we thought. And this year, that's particularly the case because of the oil price, which is affected by the conflict itself. And uh, it's still possible that there could be a a Russia-oriented crisis that could act as a sort of November surprise at the end of the election. But most likely, you know, we've we've seen in the polls that voters have made up their opinion. So most likely Republicans will take the House 50 50 on the Senate and then we'll end up in a gridlocked environment for next year.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for chatting with me today.
1: Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Quick Takes podcast. We'll be bringing you weekly quick takes with BCA strategists on a range of macro and market topics. Next week, I plan to catch up with Matt again for a post-mortem of the U.S. midterm elections, so stay tuned.